wonder if that's one of the reasons why so many of us struggle to pray with fervor, to pray with consistency, because maybe not on a conscious level, but on some level, we have a hard time getting past the first word, Father. Because the Father that we know, the earthly fathers that we know, may not have modeled fatherhood in a way that really helps our prayer life. And to address God as Father is difficult when we have a skewed image of fatherhood. Now, you may have had, for example, a father who was uh, quite heavy-handed, and you could never do anything right. Maybe he disciplined you harshly. Maybe sometimes it wasn't disciplined because there wasn't really a reason for the harshness. And look, I don't expect you and your breakout groups to spill all your guts, you know, about everything, but we can at least stop pretending that we've been hurt, stop pretending that we've been damaged. Then I think we can make some progress with viewing the God the way, viewing God the way the Bible calls us to view him as, as father. We have a difficulty with that. When we've had fathers that prompt us to think that when we approach God, he doesn't want to listen to us. He doesn't want to listen to our prayers. We're bothering him. We're nagging him by even asking anything at all because he's, well, a father. And what are fathers like? Fathers are too busy to be bothered by your dumb request. Uh, you're too small. Uh, their world is too big. And the two don't connect because you're not important enough right now. But some of us have suffered, I think, father damage because of almost maybe the opposite kind of father who, under the guise of being loving and kind, didn't discipline at all. You didn't have to do chores. You can come home whenever you want. You never checked your homework. And that's almost another kind of abuse, isn't it, on the other side. So that when you are called by Scripture to approach God as Father, you're immediately envisioning someone who is kind and nice, but aloof, distant, not very involved, and perhaps unconcerned with the consequences you will suffer when you don't do well. Now think about how young men especially in our country, in our culture, in our day and age, latch onto abusers because they would prefer that first father example I gave you over the second example I gave you. Uh, some of us were mentioning earlier the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. I haven't listened to many of them. I listened to one of them, and it's about Mark Driscoll. Maybe some of you uh, were really into Mark Driscoll. I know I'd listened to several of his sermons, and... Um, some of it was kind of corny when he would kind of wear like his leather bands and, I mean, try to do the biker look or whatever, but he wanted to communicate tough guy image. And so he would yell and get in your face and tell the men of his congregation, how dare you, right? Uh, and some people like, ooh, turned off, but other people love it. How do you think he amassed such a large following to begin with? 
It wasn't by being the nice, wimpy guy. It was being the harsh, in-your-face, bully guy. Now, eventually, that took him out. Uh, on, a, on a more local level, some of you are familiar with James McDonald. Uh, same character. Uh, it's not a surprise that they were buddies. But why do people flock to guys like that? Uh, they compared, the podcast compared um, um, Mark Driscoll to uh, the famed basketball coach Bobby Knight, who was successful, almost untouchable, because he was intelligent and he knew how to win, but he was abusive. He'll choke a player. But there's a sense in which many people gravitate toward that because they're missing a dad or because their dad was too soft, too lenient. Jordan Peterson's fame is partially attributed, as brilliant as Jordan Peterson is, you know, when he writes a book like 12 Rules for Life, I haven't read it, but he, with all his profundity and all of the... Um, research that he has behind him, people flock to him not because he's smart, but because uh, he fills that dad gap. So that one of his primary rules for life, get this, from a Harvard professor, was a Harvard professor, clean your room. Clean your room. Now this, this guy, Jordan Peterson, he talks about how people approach him all the time and tell him, how they don't have a dad, they feel lost, and how the things that he teaches them have radically changed their lives or have radically patched up their bad relationships with their dads. And what is he teaching them? He's teaching them stuff like clean your room. And so part of that void is not having a dad that tells you to clean your room. On one extreme, you have a dad that beats you just for leaving one wrapper out. And on the other hand, you have the extreme of a, a dad who doesn't care what your room looks like because he would never even darken the doorstep of your room because he's uninterested. And so I don't know what your father is like. Uh, I didn't read the book. You'll find I don't read many books. But the book that uh, our brother handed out earlier, Daddy Tried, you know what my, the first thought that crossed my mind was like, you know the book I need to read? Daddy, Daddy didn't try, but there's still hope. Because my first thought was like, did he? Did he, tr did he try? Because it kind of didn't feel like it. And that's the kind of hurt to carry around with you that will affect your parenting, it will affect your marriages, it will affect overall and underlying all of it, your relationship with God. Let's look at a couple of passages and let's turn to the one that I already alluded to in the Lord's Prayer. Let's go to Luke 11, which is the shorter version of that prayer. We will look at Matthew, so if you want to go ahead and put your finger in Matthew 6, you can do that. Um, I have a lot here. We'll see how we do. <laughs> we'll see how we do. Um, but Luke 11, Luke 11, verse 1, 
It says, now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say. Now, he's got this, uh, Luke has a shorter version than, than what Matthew has in Matthew 6. But have you ever been like, man, if I could be a fly on the wall and hear how Jesus led a Bible study or hear how Jesus explained his preaching style, right? His preaching, uh, even theology for preaching. I wish I would, could be on the fly on the wall when the disciples asked him this or that. Well, if you ever thought, I wish I knew how Jesus would answer if the disciples asked him about prayer. Well, we've got that. And it's not five pages long. He said to them, when you pray, say, and I don't think this is a formula that you can only pray this prayer, you can't pray anything else, but this is to inform how we pray. And he says, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Sanctified be your name. May your name be set apart. May your name be different than every other name of every human person, every human father, every human king. You are different. You are above and you are holy and you are perfect. But it doesn't say, uh, pray, uh, hallowed be your name, Yahweh, or Lord. It doesn't even say king, although that's there. Your kingdom comes, so he's a father who is a king. But the controlling image is father. So the way in which you think about God as king is first controlled by God as father, not a despotic king, not a faraway king, a king to whom you don't belong, not even a king to whom you belong in some tertiary sense, like you're a, you're a servant who belongs to a person who's a citizen in the kingdom of that king. You're that king's son. And you get to walk into the throne room to talk to the king. Now, there's still a weightiness there. There's still a gravity to the father because he is set apart. And so, daddy, dude, bra, that's too far, too familiar. That's inappropriate. But to approach God with a kind of trepidation that begins with the belief that he is against you or he has to put up with you is misinformed. And Jesus is teaching his disciples to come to God as Father. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. So kingdom, holiness, temple theme, kingdom theme. This is shaping how we view our Father. But it starts with Father. And we approach him this way before we start making requests. Right? Before we start rattling off the things we want, the things we need, we first express to the Lord our vision of him. And our vision of him is not how we feel about him or what we think he might be like today, but it's informed by scripture and the primary image that Jesus gives us that scripture feeds us is to approach him as holy, yes, regal, yes, ruler, yes, but father. And the father imagery controls all of those different aspects of who God is 
and how we approach him. It's interesting to me that this prayer in Luke's gospel comes right on the heels of two contrasting passages. Uh, in chapter 10, 25 through 27, you have the familiar parable of the Good Samaritan, right? The parable of the Good Samaritan. And you could summarize that as like, you don't get to just be a Christian who shows up at church and doesn't care about people. Like you've got to, you've got to love neighbor. You've got to love neighbor. Your, your discipleship needs to touch other people in ways that are um, of service and sacrifice even. But lest you get too carried away and think to be a Christian is to serve others such that, and I know none of y'all churches here would do that this evening, but you might close church on a Sunday and say, today we're closing church because we're out there being the church and you're just cleaning up the park instead of worshiping God in the assembly. That's dumb. So to correct that, Luke positions the next passage about Martha and Mary to say, yes, we're supposed to love neighbor, but if you start loving neighbor without loving God first, that's not really discipleship. So you've got Martha busy in the kitchen and she's upset with Mary. Now, be honest, as you're reading that, you're like, yeah, what is Mary doing? She's just sitting there. If you've ever had guests that are about to come over and you're all scrambling to get the house ready and one person is just... Legs crossed, opening the Kindle, reading, and you're like, that's how Martha feels. But the problem is, Mary wasn't reading her Kindle. Jesus uses an interesting phrase and tells Martha, you're out there preparing the meal, but Mary has the better portion. She's, she's eating something better than whatever can be possibly cooked up in the kitchen. See, if it was any other guest... You might have a point, but sitting at the feet of Jesus, that's the vertical relationship that controls the horizontal stuff. If you're going to be a good Samaritan, you've got to be a good worshiper first. And that comes first. And in order to aid that, to aid you sitting at the feet of Jesus, approaching God and communing with him in a, in a way that is effective, in a way that is biblical, scriptural, he teaches them how to pray. And he tells them, when you approach God, it is a holy place, a holy time. It's even a regal, royal place. We're asking him to do that here, extend his kingdom in our lives, through our lives. But we first address him as father. Now, here's a point I want to strike with you. Uh, in the Bible, I don't think this is the only thing that we get about the image of father, but the image of father... God as Father communicates derivation, we're derived from Him, derivation, we come from Him, right? Derivation and dependence. Derivation and dependence. When we think of God as Father, there's lots of things that can flood our minds as we think about Father, but what the Scripture wants, to, wants your mind to go to is we derive from Him and therefore depend on Him. You don't have to turn to these passages. I'll, you can write them down and check them out later. But I think this is what Paul is channeling in Ephesians 3, 4, 14 to 15. Ephesians 3, 14 to 15, when he says, For this reason, I bow my knees. There's the holiness. There's the, even God is king, right? I bow my knees before the Father, not the king. 
it's not that he's not king, but it's the same imagery that we see in the prayer. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Or it could be translated from whom every uh, from whom all fatherhood is named. So all fatherhood in the earth derives from God being father. And so because he's sort of the father at the top, Paul says, I, I bow my knees to this father. Quickly, Deuteronomy 32, 6. Father, uh, so this an Old Testament theme. Jesus didn't just come on the scene and say, you know what? Let's call him father. No. Deuteronomy 32, 6. God as father means that he created he made Israel. He established Israel. They come from him. They derive from him. Malachi 2.10, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Father, creator. We derive from him. Paul again in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, he says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist. There it is again. What does Father mean? We all come from Him. We wouldn't exist without Him. Our existence derives from His existence and His creation power. And we see this in the early creeds, don't we? The Apostles' Creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Nicene Creed, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. Father is maker. He creates. And so therefore we get our existence from him. We get our fatherhood from him. We get our lives from him. We draw breath from his hands. And because we derive from him, it demands that we depend on him. I think of Isaiah 64, 8. Isaiah 64, 8. You are our father, you are the potter, we are the clay. So there, there it is again. Father is juxtaposed to a potter with clay. We come from him, we derive from him, everything about our lives depends upon him. Derivation and dependence. Jeremiah 3.19, Jeremiah 3.19, just a few more here before we return to Luke. Jeremiah 3.19 talks about how uh, a heritage is gained from a father. And in this case, uh, the cherished promised land, the text says the most beautiful of all nations, it's a heritage from God as father. What you have as a heritage is given to you from the father, so you depend on him for it. If he wasn't your father, you wouldn't have it. You're dependent. Psalm 103.13, Psalm 103.13 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. The drawing analogy is, you, if you look around fathers that are good with their kids, they're compassionate to their kids, that's a, a picture, an image of what God is like. He shows compassion to those who fear him. James 1.17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or change or shadow due to change. Anything you get in your life that's any good gift at all, it's because it's from the Father.
There's so much here, but I'll, I'm going to move along. This is how uh, Jesus connected the Father to, to his disciples, that we are dependent on the Father. You might remember that passage in Matthew 11 where Jesus declares, <laughs> he just starts praying in front of everybody in a way that everyone can hear him, what he's praying. He's like, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. This is Matthew eleven twenty five. 25. I thank you, Father. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. There it is again. Father, creator. Thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. God has addressed this Father five times in two verses, and the point of it is God reveals his truth to those who are like little children. What are little children like? They can't feed themselves. They can't drive themselves anywhere. It's mommy this, daddy that. When are we there? When are we going there? They have no sense of time, no sense of much at all, really, <laughs> when you're a little kid. And it's that child that needs to ask dad, when are we going? When are we there? What's for dinner? Can you take me? I need $5. Because if you didn't give it to them, they don't have it. Those who feel like they have don't need God. And because they don't need God, they don't see him as father. And because they don't see him as father, they reject him as God. This is why it's important to view God not just as a deity, not just as a creator, but our father who's a creator, our Father, upon whom we're supposed to depend. When we understand that, then we are primed for expression of that dependence. We can express that dependence when we realize we are dependent upon this God to whom we, uh, who we address as Father. Now we come before him, address him as Father, this Holy Father, yes, sanctified Father, yes, kingly father, yes, but father still. And then we get this, the rest of the prayer asking God for provisions. Really quickly, turn over to Matthew 6 where you see the other version of this prayer. And then we'll come back to Luke 11 to close it out. In Matthew 6, I, I love the lead up to, he has a different lead into the prayer, right, than Luke does. And here, he first says, don't pray like this, and don't pray like this. Here's how you pray. Don't pray to do this, and don't pray to do this, but pray to do this. The first one, don't pray to be showy, verses 1 through 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, he's a Father who gives rewards, but he's not going to just hand it out. He's not that sloppy Father in the second example I gave you, where it's trophy for everyone. No. 
Father doesn't like it. The Father doesn't like it when you pray to him to show off in front of other people. You're not really praying to him. You're praying for the sake of yourself. You're glorifying yourself, not this holy king you serve. Thus, when you give to the needy, don't sound the trumpet as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward already, right? Verse 3, but when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So your motivation for praying the right way is the father rewards. Don't pray showy prayers. And also don't pray to inform him. And the reason why is because he's your father. Now check it out in, starting in verse 5. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. They love to stand in the synagogue, the street corners. They want to be seen by others. They receive their reward. Go to your room, shut the door, pray to your father in secret. There it is again. The father who sees you in secret will reward you. Verse 7. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. The reason why you don't pray showy prayers is because you, God is a father who rewards. The reason why you don't pray empty phrases, just stacking phrases, you're in, you're in private, but you're just like, Lord, hear all these fancy words. Hear all this theology I learned in this new book I read. And we're praying like we're trying to inform God. God doesn't want you to pray to inform him because he already knows what you need. He's that kind of father. Well, if we don't need to pray to inform him, why should we pray? He already knows what I need. What am I asking it for? The relationship expressed specifically in dependence. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Very simply put in Luke 11, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. That's a request, technically. But now it's a request for provisions. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. There's the vertical and the horizontal connected again. And lead us not into temptation. So we depend on God as Father. We pray correctly, not like the Pharisees and not like the Gentiles, because we view him as Father. And so oftentimes our prayer lives are derailed because we, we don't appropriately see him as the Father that he is. He is the Father who provides our daily bread. I think to the extent that you realize you are a little child dependent on your maker father, that's the extent to which you will pray. I mean, when we're, when we're prayerless, we're not leaning on him. When we need to lean on him, we pray. And so as we think about our need for daily provision, daily sustenance, our need for forgiveness, we need to take that to God. We need to, he knows we need it, but we still, we come and we express it. We verbally express our dependence upon God. 
I want to pause there a second. Verse 4, Luke 11, verse 4, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. I mean, Jesus is unrelenting. He won't hear your prayers if you're praying like this. And he won't hear your prayers if you're praying like that. So pray like this. And when you pray like this, make sure that you're not just like, and forgive me, God, and you forget your obligation in life to forgive. And some of the hardest people we have to forgive in our lives are our own dads. And you will ruin the prayer life that you're supposed to have with your heavenly father if you're not allowing the father to get you to the place you need to be to forgive your earthly father. Forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Your father owes you. You were robbed in some way. You can't crawl in a time machine. You can't take it back. You've got to be able to get to a place where you can extend the very mercy and grace to your own fathers that you're asking of your heavenly father. And lead us not into temptation. Our father leads us. Our father guides us. He is the shepherd of Psalm 23. And so we're able to ask him for these provisions. We're able to lean on him for what we need and what we need desperately because if God doesn't give it to us, we don't get it. You can't scratch your, and claw your way toward it. Just to return to the forgiveness example, you're like, man, I, I feel like I can't forgive. I know. Why do you think you've got to ask for it? You've got to experience it from God in conjunction with giving it to other people. And so we pray for these things. We don't just easily get them. We ask for leadership. We know we're weak. We know we're going to be tempted. We ask God for it. We lean on him because if he doesn't lead us and he doesn't guide us, we're all going over the cliff. Lost little children who don't know their way. And just like little kids who don't have rules uh, suffer. We suffer when we don't lean into God's leadership. And if you're wondering, well, I want God's leadership, I just don't know what he wants me to do. Like, when's the last time you really picked this up, dug into it, right? It's part of the daily bread that he provides now, here's, here's another interesting piece, I think. What Luke follows this prayer up with is some more father stuff, okay? First, he does a friend thing, and then he does a father thing. The friend thing is right at the top, and he says, kind of like a parable, a story. He said, imagine you have a friend, right? This is verse 5. Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves? For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him and he will answer from within, don't bother me, the door is shut, my children are with me in bed, I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his impudence, his boldness, the urgency with which he comes and knocks on the door, he's going to get up and give it to him. He will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. He's still talking about prayer. So how do you approach the Father? Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. So a lot of us, we don't have because we don't ask. We don't approach. It's like, I don't want to bother God. It's like, God isn't bothered. But even if he were bothered, think about the human guy who's down the street 
And just because the impudence of your knocking, he's going to get up, how much more will God give to you what you ask? Now you might go, hmm, so I can ask whatever? No, because if you can ask anything you want and he'll give you anything you want, he's the derelict father in the second example I gave you, which is where he goes next. When he says, uh, in verse 10, for everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Follow-up illustration. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent, or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, ouch, <laughs> you may not feel like an evil dad, but you know you're not a perfect dad. God has no evil, in him there is no darkness, no none at all. So if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He's not a father who gives bad gifts. Now imagine if you reversed it and the kid asked for the scorpion. Does he go, well, you asked for the scorpion, here you go. No, you should be asking for an egg right here. Try it again. But I really like the scorpion. Yeah, it'll hurt you. Try it again. Okay, how about an egg? There you go. What Jesus is communicating is we come and ask God for requests, the right requests, the right provisions. And he's not going to trick you. God is not out to get you. He wants what's best for you. Now, if you ask something dumb, he's not going to give it to you. If you ask something that's good, he's going to give it to you. And sometimes we don't know the difference, and thank God that he is a father who does. He does know the difference. And so Jesus is motivating his disciples to pray. They just said, well, I asked you how to pray. He's like, I'm going to give you how to pray, and I'm going to give you why to pray too. <laughs> because he's a father that answers the door when you knock. He's a father that answers when you ask. He's never buried behind a newspaper. He's not too busy traveling. He responds, but he responds rightly. I find it very interesting, verse 13, he says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give, what do you think he would say? Good gifts to you. How much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit? Well, I guess there's a couple of options there that I don't think I have to belabor too long because you have very worthy pastors serving in your pulpits. But on the first blush, it could mean we have to consistently ask for the Holy Spirit to get saved over and over. There's a myriad of reasons why that should be immediately ruled out because of other scriptures. Another way to look at it is this is Jesus telling his disciples, you're not saved yet, so ask and you'll receive salvation. I don't think it's salvation. I think he's teaching disciples how to pray in a continual way. When you pray, pray like this. Not the first time, not one time coming down the aisle, not just for baptism, but this is how you pray. The problem is when we see Holy Spirit, we see salvation and nothing else. But when God gives his good gifts, it's through the ministry of the Holy Spirit applied to your life. So I, I don't think Jesus has in mind asking for vehicles and cars and a bigger house, you know. But primarily, and it's not that you can't ask God for material health and things like that, of course. I think that's 
folded into uh, the daily provisions of verse 3. But it is what the Holy Spirit provides to your life that are the rewards of the good Father. One commentator put it this way, that the request for the Holy Spirit is a request for God's presence, His guidance, His intimacy. I think at the very least, the Holy Spirit's ministry is the way that God applies those three provisions that are asked for in that prayer. Our daily sustenance, our daily help, our daily nutrition, if you will, our forgiveness, connected with our ability to forgive others, and God's leadership in our life. Holy Spirit inspired the written scripture that we study. The Holy Spirit illuminates the scripture as we study it. The Holy Spirit brings to mind our remembrance of the scripture that we study. It's in that way that he's our comforter, our counselor. And the ultimate gift is that God gives the gift of his son to restore our estranged sonship. And maybe you're in here tonight and you don't have a relationship with our Heavenly Father. Or you're in here tonight and you just need to be reminded, you need the proof that God does love you. If you're suffering something right now, feels distant, God feels distant, I'm not feeling it right now. I'm not feeling that closeness with God right now. Jesus isn't asking you to cling to emotions about how you're feeling about God right now. But God demonstrated his love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God gave the perfect gift of his son, John 3, 16. You know it well, I'm sure. He loved the world so. He loved the world in this way. He demonstrated it. Here's how. Exhibit A, prime example, is the gift of his son. The son who would come and take up our failed sonship, take the wrath that is due us from our father so that we can have life. And that way, Jesus takes on sonship for us. Jesus is our bread. He is our manna. He is the model of forgiveness such that when we go, did I deserve Jesus to take my death and me to take life so that, you know, he takes my death so I can have life? Do I deserve that? No. Well, if he forgave me this huge debt, I can forgive this much smaller debt. So Jesus is our model for forgiveness, but he's not only our model for forgiveness, he empowers that very forgiveness. Because it's by virtue of our union with Christ that we get the ministry of the Holy Spirit to change the heart that couldn't forgive, but now that you're united to Christ, you're, you're conformed to the image of Christ such that you're empowered to forgive when you couldn't before. So the gospel, the cross, and resurrection of Jesus Christ has to be at the center of how we view the Father. This is the primary gift. This is the primary provision of all provisions. This is at the center of all things. And anytime we're tempted to think that God is distant or doesn't care, we need to be reminded that God fights for his children. When you read through the book of Exodus, 
And there in Exodus 4, Israel is referred to as God's son. And you see the sort of battle of the dads, don't you? Where God the father is going to bat for his son Israel. But there's another father in the picture who's ruling over Israel with an iron fist. And when he's threatened by the other dad who's going to raise up a deliverer to rescue his kids, what does the Pharaoh do? He drowns all the firstborn kids, right? All the, all the kids that could be the deliverer possibly. He drowns them. So then God, the father of Israel, rolls up his sleeves and starts picking off the gods of Egypt in some ways. Stubborn Pharaoh just keeps muscling up. Vacillating, okay, go, never mind, stay. Until God kills his son. Rescues his people. Pharaoh chases them down. And then God, perhaps ironically, drowns Pharaoh like Pharaoh did to his kids. God the Father wins. That picture there wouldn't be the story if it weren't for the deliverer that God raised up to lead those children out. The picture of Passover that protects them, all those firstborn kids would be dead were it not for the blood of that lamb. So none of us deserve a relationship with our father, but it's purchased for us. And it's not purchased for us so that we can get in and escape hell. It's purchased for us so that, that's true, but it's so that we can enjoy a, a relationship of dependence upon this father, see? And so that's why we're driven to pray. We shouldn't be primarily driven to pray because God said so, although that's true. But you know, some of you who are parents, your kids ask you, why? Why should I do this? You should do this, why? Now you have some options there. You can say, because I said so. And let me just be clear, I think sometimes you do need to pull that out. You don't want to be a slave to explanation because it's like, who's the parent here? I'll do that if you explain it to me in terms that I agree to. You're going to shut up and do what I said, right? But if you only ever choose that option, that's not really hugging God's MO as a father. Because look at all of this explanation we have before and after this prayer in Matthew 6 and in Luke 11. Don't pray like this. Why? Because then you lose your reward, man. Don't pray like that. It seems like immediate gratis, uh, gratification when you pray that way. But then you lose out on this better gratification. See, don't do that because even though it's, it's attractive, there's this better thing. I mean, I, I, I'm just always struck with how God treats Cain. Nadab and Abihu mess up one time and they're dead. But God rolls up on Cain like, hey, bro, you know what's about to happen, right? <laughs> you know what's about to happen? Sin is, is like this thing that crouches and wants to take you. It wants to jump you. You've got to fight it. Now that's a dad. And then he gets in trouble and he's like, this is too much for me. Oh, I'm going to put a mark on you. I'm like, kill him. <laughs> he, he doesn't become a loving father in the New Testament. And Jesus isn't the son that convinces him to be less harsh. God is love. 
but in his love, he's got rules. He knows there's temptation, and we need his leadership to dodge it. And you will not find your own way, brother. You will not find your own way. You feel unsatisfied. You feel like you still need something. You're not sure what it is. You need the Lord to be your shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd I shall not want. That's it. How do you get to a place of not wanting that hole that you can't fill because your dad didn't fill it, your girlfriend doesn't fill it, your marriage didn't fill it, you thought you'd get it when you had kids, maybe it even went backwards for a minute. The Lord needs to be your shepherd. And we stoke that relationship with the shepherd by praying, not cold, distant prayers, but prayers that approach him as father, a father who gives good gifts. Whatever your father was like, I hope that you can forgive. I hope that you can draw on the forgiveness that you receive from the Father through Jesus Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And if you've not experienced that, I pray that that would be the main takeaway of this weekend. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful to you for revealing to us in your word just how good you are. We thank you for revealing to us in your word what we would not be able to discern just from looking at nature. We know you are God. We know that you have eternal power. You're a divine being. We know you're creator. But you chose to reveal to your little children the gospel, which is the power unto salvation. So that all of your prodigal sons can return home from wherever and whatever we did or have been doing, we can come to you and be changed by your grace. I pray for each person here tonight who doesn't know you, if there are any here who do not know you, would you arrest their attention, convict them by your Holy Spirit, reveal to them their utter need of you, for the rest of us, Lord, as we veer into a lane of pride and arrogance and haughtiness and we lose that childlike edge that is so important, remind us that we are nothing outside of you. Everything we are derives from you and therefore we are to be totally and completely dependent upon you. May that revive our quiet times the times we spend in your word, may that shape how we pray, how often we pray, the way in which we pray. God, give us a more biblical vision of who you are as Father so that we can enjoy you in that dependent relationship. And I pray that we would teach others how to view you as Father as well. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand as we close in one last song? You should find it on page six, the next page. How deep the Father's love for us. <laughs>